Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Casey Mulligan, professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Department of Economics. Uh, It's a a real treat uh, to have Casey here. Uh, He is an expert in uh, many areas of economics and is perhaps one of the um, most famous advocates of Chicago price theory, uh, something he'll get into in a little bit. He's also um, written many um, fantastic um, academic economics papers in in so many areas of economics. We're so excited to have him on the podcast today. Good, John. Um, I like capitalism and freedom. Uh, I teach a class on socialism, so I kind of appreciate what the alternative is as well. Well, uh, we're really excited to have you here. And uh, I know... uh, uh, you appreciate um, uh, Friedman, uh, along with, uh, I think, many listeners uh, here, uh, along with myself, and, and uh, in part why uh, the, uh, uh, you know, which, of course, uh, you know, his famous 1962 book has given this podcast its its name, and, and a big part of the goal of this podcast is to sort of, um, you know, think about how uh, maybe Milton Friedman would have thought about things in the 21st century, and to also to maybe uh, a question um uh, what Friedman um, argued in, in much of the 20th century and, and maybe rethink uh, some of those arguments. Um, I, I want to start by getting into your story um, and, and talk about how you got interested in economics um, from the time you were an undergrad um, to uh, when you came to the University of Chicago as a graduate student and, uh, and then as a professor. Um, what began this lifelong passion and interest uh, in economics? I actually was a math major when I was a freshman. Um, And the math professors didn't treat me that well. Um, They weren't mean or anything, but they had other interests other than their undergraduates. And I had this other class called economics. Marty Feldstein was the professor of that. And even though he was obviously an important person, uh, had the President Reagan's attention, but he still uh, showed a lot of interest in my learning and my career, as well as my classmates. And I thought, you know, maybe maybe I should stick with this guy's class and what, what he's doing, and I grew to really like it. That's, that's fascinating. I know, you know Marty Feldstein 
has had so many uh, students over the years, and uh, certainly uh, was, uh, I, I think, you know, was well known as sort of the inventor of public economics and in uh, a certain approach to uh, uh, economics, you know, things like um, uh, elasticity of taxable income. I think a lot of these things really go back to, to Marty. So I'm, I'm not surprised that um, he was a, a big influence on you and, and um, a, a big part of the beginning of, of your career. Um, you know, I think uh, for many who have taught uh, Act 10 over the decades, whether it's um, Marty Feldstein or Greg Mankiw or Jason Furman now, I think um, Act 10 has, has influenced um, so many people, um, whether they've chosen uh, to become uh, economics uh, or economists or, or not. Um, th there's, I think, a, a very long history there and, and um, uh, fantastic to learn that, that Casey, you are part of that history. Um, so sort of uh, want to flash forward to you know, University of Chicago here. You've written a book titled Chicago Price Theory on this very topic. And often when, whenever this topic of Chicago price theory comes up, um, th there's always this question of what is Chicago price theory? How does it differ from standard graduate microeconomics? Um, often, I think most students um, outside of the University of Chicago learn their graduate microeconomics uh, from MWG um, uh, or, or uh, Mass Collel, Winston Green, uh, which, which is uh, sort of the, the, I think, number one best-selling microeconomics graduate textbook of the past 30 years. Um, but those graduate students at the University of Chicago have to take this thing called price theory, um, which I think in part, uh, you know, certainly uh, Milton Friedman played a, a substantial role in, in teaching um, one quarter of that class, I believe, uh, along with Gary Becker uh, and, and others um, over the years um, in, in that period. C could you explain to the audience what Chicago price theory is? Yes, we um, really, the course dates back over 100 years. Uh, Viner taught it in the 30s. As you said, Malton Friedman had an important role teaching it. Uh, Al Harberger, um, Becker, and Murphy. And it's very applied. It's not viewed as a mathematical exercise. Um, you know, we're, our intention is not to teach somebody how to construct a mathematical proof. We, we may encounter some proofs, but this is part of understanding the applications. I mean, real world questions. Um, you know, what's happening to labor share over time would be an example. Or what are the consequences of a corporate income tax? And so it has that uh, applied orientation. And that's, you, you can read Viner's course from 100 years ago, and you'll see that same uh, emphasis. The price theories emphasize markets. Um, lots of people together. Um, we get away from the, the alternative approach would be more emphasis on strategic interactions, small groups, uh, monopoly, oligopoly, more the game theoretic emphasis on strategy. You look at auction theory, I mean, in principle, auction theory can be very general and include lots of things, but in practice, there's just a good that comes from heaven and needs to be auctioned off. And there's a few bidders who are there and we think about how they interact. In price theory, that would not be our emphasis at all. We wanna know where does the good come from? What does it cost to make it? What are these substitutes um, in terms of resources for making that good? 
Um, on the consumer side, what, what are they doing with that good? What are their alternatives? Um, so we have really more of a market uh, emphasis. We would not ever assume a fixed number of bidders on a good. There's, there's a whole uh, population of people who might purchase the good if it had the right uh, properties and the, and the right price. Chicago, you know, if it, there's the price theory part. A lot of what I said could describe price theory more generally. Um, the Chicago part would be also an emphasis on comp competition, partly for intellectual reasons that when we look at a competitive market, maybe simplifies things so we can focus on some other complexities that might be quite important. Um, complexities on the technology side, maybe on the preference side. Um, so you had, say, the Becker and Murphy rational addiction analysis. You know, they didn't spend a lot of time looking at oligopoly in that paper. It's not that you can't have an oligopoly for an addictive good, but the dynamics and the stock formation and habit formation, they wanted to focus on that. So they did it in a competitive framework. And we kind of do that over and over again. We have some chapters that deal with imperfect competition and monopoly, but really emphasis is on taste and technology, especially technology, uh, such an interesting topic. It changes a lot. Um, so that would be our emphasis. You know, and as a result of these differences, one thing you'll see in a price theory book, including ours, you can see discussion of price controls, price regulations. MWG, 1,000 pages dealing with all kinds of issues. Price controls is nowhere. Um, and as you know, John, you, you worked on Capitol Hill. Price controls is everywhere in policy. So it's a bit scary to me that we have so many people trained uh, in economics, microeconomics, and aren't trained in price controls. And then they end up in Washington doing the price controls. Um, and that would be an example uh, of, of a big difference between micro and price theory and practice. Absolutely. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it, it's interesting, too, you know, uh, that there's, um, in many respects, I, I think a lot of these uh, models don't necessarily involve utility functions. I know that's sort of a, a bane of uh, certain undergraduates, um, but it really just starts with the, the sort of concept of supply and demand, things that I think people can agree on, generally speaking, and, and building really simple models, which I think is a, a big part of uh, the Chicago tradition. And, um, and it, it's uh, also an honor that I've had to go to the Chicago Price Theory Summer Camp, something that is broadly open to uh, graduate PhD students to go and, and to learn from uh, yourself, from uh, from Kevin, Kevin Murphy, um, and others who are also passionate about uh, the Chicago Price Theory approach and and, and learning really interesting, uh, really interesting uh, applications of Chicago Price Theory, whether it's um, you know thinking about the supply and demand for oil or, or housing or many other topics. I, I know uh, uh, you have a, a paper out recently on um, opioid markets and, and opioid deaths. Um, so th there's a, a number of applications, I think, um, to um, economics uh, and, and social economics and, and uh, many different fields, anywhere, I guess, uh, where you have sort of simple uh, supply and demand um, frameworks. And, and so um, it, it's um, really interesting and a treat for myself to uh, to get to know and, and to work through um, uh, some of those um, uh, some of those problems in, in your book as well, and, and I think certainly 
Um, Chicago price theory is uh, something that uh, I think people who are interested in, in, in that sort of uh, simple Chicago approach um, might want to check out. Uh, and I know you have uh, an upcoming um, revised edition of, of your book, uh, Chicago Price Theory, uh, as well, which you've co-authored uh, with uh, Robbie Min, Sonia Jaffe, and Kevin Murphy as well, something that uh, people should uh, check out when it comes out. Um, certainly want to uh, fast forward here a little bit um, to your time in government uh, with uh, the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump admin. Um, you also wrote a book about your experience uh, called uh, You're Hired. I'm curious, what was this experience like having been uh, you know, an economist and professor at the University of Chicago's famed you know, economics department um, for many years and then going to government, going to uh, Washington and, and serving in, in, uh, in, in the White House uh, in the Council of Economic Advisors. What was that experience like? And, and um, uh, you know, as an economist, what did you find to be most interesting and, um, and, and I, I guess, uh, effective? Do people in, in government actually uh, think about economics the, the right way in your mind or, or, or are many people um, not uh, thinking about incentives the way they should be? Well, the, there were, intellectually, it's very similar to my job as a Chicago professor. Now, the students were not 21 years old. They were maybe older, but it did a lot of the same things. Actually, the Chicago Price Theory was published while I was there, and I had the page proof on my desk, and I used them every day. Um, one thing, when you're working in the White House, the president is the head of a massive organization, too massive, but he's head of a massive organization. He's dealing with the multiple fire hoses of information and questions and issues, and so are his staff, like us. And what a valuable thing to have uh, price theory as a tool to organize all that stuff. So we could actually swallow all that water that the fire was putting out because we had the price theory to digest it. So I was really applying price theory. I, I think I actually made a bibliography of like 65 or 67 different things we put out in one year where we use Chicago price theory and I show which pages we used. Um, and the people in the White House loved it. I mean, they were happy that we were able to be so productive. They started to recognize patterns, you know, that maybe these health regulation issues are not so different than energy regulation issues uh, or labor regulation issues. Um, so that part was was very similar. Now I had to wear a suit and tie. That's something I never do uh, on a university campus. Um, had a beautiful office, I had a view of the White House. So the kind of superficial things were pretty different. The pay was low, um, but intellectually it, it felt quite similar. Um, another difference would be the president himself. He was a, uh, he's good at publicity. You might've noticed that. He knows how to get millions of people to pay attention. Um, and he loved what we were doing. So he was always bringing attention, you know, 100x, 1,000 times x attention to our findings than we would ever be used to on, on our own. Uh, we put things on his Twitter, um, you know, things like, well, the drug CPI has fallen for the first time in 46 years, and that's got to do with deregulation. You know, regulation raises prices, deregulation lowers prices, um, things like that. He made millions of people 
uh, see the results. So it was very exciting time for me. Um, it's part of the reason I wrote the book to try to share that with people and also remember all the things that happened in a short period of time. Well, that's uh, fantastic to hear that you had such a, a good uh, and positive experience um, working in DC. And I know that not, not every economist um, that, that serves on CEA or, um, or, or goes to DC um, walks away with a similar sort of experience. You know, sometimes it's hard to, uh, to get things done, but I'm, I'm glad to hear, um, I, I remember um, seeing some of these series that you had put together of sort of the CPI subcomponents that, that have to uh, do with drug prices and, and how they've fallen um, over this, this sort of period of, of, of DREG and, and I think around 2018. And I know there's uh, now I think been changes too in terms of um, whether the government's being allowed to actually uh, uh, negotiate with Medicare prices. And it, it seems like there's uh, a lot going on too, just I, I think uh, with the uh, widespread use of uh, or, or greater use of generics. I think that that maybe had, uh, was a big part of that 2018 um, story. Um, I, I guess here, you know, just also thinking about, you know, uh, we have a lot of uh, younger people and younger economists who are listening and, you know, are, are thinking about um, advice, whether it's um, thinking about doing interesting research or, or doing research that informs policymakers. Um, certainly a lot of your research is very policy relevant. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, that we also have a lot of listeners who are in Washington, D.C., and working in, in Capitol Hill or, um, or, or elsewhere in D.C. Um, I'm curious, what would be your advice to um, a, a younger self or, or to younger economists in terms of um, finding um, issues that are interesting to apply uh, an economic perspective to or, or, or things that you think are um, not well studied or, or not well examined yet? Um, I, I feel like you see, you've, you've worked on uh, so many different issues that you'd be a perfect person um, to, to give advice to somebody who's younger. And, and I'm also curious too, in terms of like what, what uh, how people should think about um, their careers and, and um, what, what sorts of things, you know, they want some sort of a career in economics, whether that's in um, academia or policy, what are some, you know, sort of basic things that you um, recommend people do and, and trying to establish uh, a brand of, of some form. Um, you know, you get your diploma and hopefully the learning's not over. Um, that's primary career advice that I would give and many people would have given. There, I heard Stephen Wolfram put it, uh, he calls it a stack. And he, he's a computer guy. Uh, maybe he's thinking about the insides of a computer. But he likes to think of his own career that way, that he, every year he was doing something that he could build on the next year. Um, and so he's thinking of building up a stack. And in, in our profession, we call that human capital, but the advice is the same. You're learning things, you're gaining skills. Um, and if you're in a position where you can use what you learned next year, and next year you build things that you can use the next year, that I think is a great, road to success. And I do, I do get, a little, get a little concerned about some of the younger people, they're jumping around. You know, part of the, you want to jump around to find what you're good at, and that I understand. But some of the kind of empirical approaches in our profession are like, well, I just happened to run across this data set, so I'll work on it, and then I'll be done, and the next year I'll be onto something else. And 
you're not building a stack. Um, and I worry where, what position you'll be in middle age and older age if you haven't um, built a stack. So while it seemed like I've worked on a lot of different issues, but in fact, there was a set of basic skills, price theory that I was developing, technological capabilities, econometric capabilities. Um, so most of those projects made me uh, better at the next one, even though it might appear as a broader topic that there's not a close relation. Fantastic. And are there any, um, I know you're close with quite a few um, you know, very uh, famous uh, economists in, in the Chicago uh, tradition of whether it's uh, you know from Gary Becker, Milton Friedman, um, you know many, many others um, you know, who are still there. I mean, are, are there any particular like uh, Gary Becker or, or Milton Friedman stories or pieces of advice or, or or things that you remember about them that um, uh, you know were particularly interesting or, or, or worth remembering um, in, in your mind or that influenced you um, in, in your um, uh, journey as an economist? Well, I think um, I was influenced by Friedman, and Becker was too in, in, in many ways, but the one common influence that we felt, actually going to the title of your podcast, Capitalism and Freedom, um, when Milton wrote that, those were kind of based on economic theory, an economic way of thinking, and the policies that came out were considered completely radical. Like, hey, let's not have the post office have a monopoly on delivering packages. Hey, let's have an all-volunteer military. Let's flatten the income tax. These were considered completely ra radical, politically infeasible, and it was kind of a waste of time. And that was published, I think, in 1962. And within just a few years, these things started to happen. And we got a FedEx that was allowed. We got deregulation of airlines. We, we got an all-volunteer army in 1973. Um, and Becker uh, and myself, it kind of encourages us to kind of stick with the theory and don't be an am amateur political scientist and say, you know, I'm not going to work on this because this policy is politically infeasible. You know, the politics can change. The taste uh, and the technology and supply and demand that basic logic is not going to change. Um, you know, an example that Becker gave, a personal example he gave there was around um, the draft again. Becker himself wrote a draft, uh, a paper about the draft and its problems and why an all-volunteer system would be better. And he didn't send it in for publication because he thought it was just impossible. Um, within a dozen years of him throwing that in his drawer, it became possible. He was kicking himself. And I had a similar uh, instance in my own career where I was working on uh, teaching public economics and thinking about government programs that are in-kind rather than paying money. And one of the things economic theory says, you know, you can't really have an in-kind program if you can resell the things. So you can understand Medicare has hospital visits and doctor visits, you can't really resell your hospital bed that easily, so it kind of works. But at the time, this was the 90s, the Senate and the House were talking about having a uh, adding drugs to the Medicare. And we're like, wait a second, drugs you can resell. Your hospital bed you can't resell, but drugs you can resell. Grandmas are going to turn into drug dealers. And I thought, it's 
no one in Washington is going to listen to me about that. In fact, no one in academia is going to listen to me if I'm going to say grandmas are going to become drug dealers. And so I dropped it. Um, and I really regret doing that because the economics was very clear. And what happened within a few years, we got Medicare Part D and immediately you had a few grandmothers, not many, but in high volume, were selling drugs that the government was buying for them at a low price and they were turning around selling a high price and people died from that. So um, things can change. What do you think is acceptable to talk about um, in the policy realm or in the academic realm can change pretty quickly in it makes sense to stick with your principles. And Milton did that in the capitalism and freedom. And Absolutely. And to think about, I mean, just how many of these topics are, are I think, newly relevant again today. Um, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, you know, that how um, prescient that account was in, in 1962, you know, capitalism and freedom, when, you know, there, only a few decades later, we got an all-volunteer all military in the U.S. And then uh, on top of that, um, you know, uh, things like you, you also sort of had the, I guess, Reaganomics sort of revolution where, uh, and not only Reaganomics, but I mean, you also had JFK um, who slashed uh, the top income rate um, substantially, you know, and, and the top income rate went from, uh, you know, with the JFK and Reagan tax cuts from the top marginal rate was, I think, close to 90% and uh, was brought all the way down um, to you know, the 30s, where it's sort of sat in, in recent decades. Um, now, you know, we haven't gotten a flat tax. Uh, some Eastern European countries did end up getting uh, flat taxes after the uh, fall of the USSR. Um, and, and a number of people like Bob Hall and others, I think, were influential in, in, in promoting flat taxes and certainly in countries that sort of didn't have maybe great institutions and, and great rule of law and, and perhaps it made a lot more sense, you know, also in places like Hong Kong, for example, where flat tax has been successful. But I'm curious, like, about your thoughts about sort of the future here and, and sort of the legacy of capitalism and freedom. Um, you know, there's a lot of topics that were written in that book that sort of have a lot of renewed interest right now, whether I think, you know, occupational licensing um, is very much uh, a topic of interest right now. You know, scholars like Morris Kleiner have been working on it for decades, but I feel like now um, quite a few scholars are interested in this topic. Um, and then you also have other things like income share agreements you know, and the whole challenge of you know, rising costs of going to college, um, you know, which have become astronomical and, and thinking that maybe there's better approaches than simply um, you know, fixed rate student debt that's being subsidized by the federal government. Um, income share agreements in, in recent years were sort of thought of this um, you know, potential solution to mitigate that issue and have sort of better incentives on both the part of um, uh, the, the student uh, and, uh, and, and maybe having, you know, better accountability in the sense that, um, uh, you know, that there's sort of an aligned incentive to find majors that maybe um, have better outcomes. Uh, and of course, this is all before the sort of blanket student forgiveness that um, occurred last summer, but I'm curious, like, what do you think about the legacy of capitalism and freedom in the 21st century? Obviously, the, the discipline has moved quite a bit, I, I think, uh, away from uh, Friedman in, in some respects, but I'm curious about his ideas back then, and, and do you think that um, uh, that they're sort of newly relevant today, and, and if so, how, and, and in what areas do you think they, they might be relevant again? You know, Milton Friedman wrote me uh, a couple letters. One of them I re I'm remembering now about my paper. Uh, 
And he said, you know, Casey, you're politically naive. The economics is fine, but you're politically naive. Now I think back, it kind of cracks me up because actually he was projecting a little bit that he was maybe a little politically naive. His view, especially earlier in his career when he wrote that book, was if he can just educate enough people about economics, then we can change policy. Um, and a more Stiglerian view after George Stigler would be, no, we have these so-called policies, so-called mistakes. There's a reason for that. It's a political equilibrium of some kind. Um, and it's not a matter of a lack of economic education or it's people's incentive not to acquire that education, let's say. Um, and this was kind of an intellectual battle within our department. Um, and I think Friedman, a lot of it rubbed off on, on, on Friedman, uh, although he's still at the very end, still appreciated economic education. And so it's not zero weight on that, but still. And so I think when you've seen some of the things in capitalism and freedom, they were successful because their economic gains were, were high. But it also wasn't a political equilibrium to stay with a kind of a flat tax. And so loopholes got introduced again, after, especially after the 1986 reform. And I think even later in his life, Friedman wrote some Wall Street Journal saying, you know, there's a, a lot of the politicians have a lot of interest to poke holes in, in the flat tax um, in order, you know, to 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 be important um, and, and to get their constituents' attention. So I, I think that's partly why you see a pendulum swinging that the political equilibrium with our current institutions not it's not total freedom. And um, you get in periods where the lack of freedom is too costly and we move in the direction of more freedom. But again, that's not a permanent equilibrium. So we move back toward the less freedom. That's kind of the way I think about it and kind of follows uh, Milton's own intellectual history. Yeah. And so uh, such a fascinating point. And, and, you know, I think more about things like vouchers, uh, school vouchers and, and terror schools, which are also you know, very much uh, a big topic today in education reform circles. Um, you know, there are so many issues that, that Milton Friedman talked about that I think are, are newly relevant and, and uh, perhaps um, all the more reason to, uh, to turn back to um, some of these um, older ideas, which uh, may be newly relevant again, and, and all the more reason to uh, pull out um, not only uh, uh, Milton Friedman's old price theory textbook, but also your Chicago price theory textbook, uh, which again is being uh, a revised version is coming out uh, soon. Uh, thank you so much, Casey, for joining us today. Uh, this is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Our guest today was Casey Mulligan, a professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Department of Economics. Thank you so much for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.